You're listening to the Thesis Review Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Wellick. On the Thesis Review, I'll interview researchers from around the field, centering the conversation around their PhD thesis. In addition to exploring the technical content, this will give insight into their history as a researcher, allow us to revisit older ideas, and provide a valuable perspective on how their research and the field itself has evolved since their PhD days. My guest today is Luke Zettelmeyer, a professor in the Allen School of Computer Science and Engineering at the University of Washington, and a researcher at Meta. He's done a lot of incredible work throughout machine learning and NLP, including foundational work in large-scale, self-supervised pre-training of language models, works such as Elmo, Roberta, BART, and OPT, all of which were crucial for the development of language models as we know them today. Luke's PhD thesis is titled Learning to Map Sentences to Logical Form, which he completed in 2009 at MIT. We talk about his work in the thesis on semantic parsing, and the path from there to working on the foundational ELMO paper, then discuss various topics related to large language models, including his work on open sourcing the OPT models, the future of scaling, and research in academia versus industry. Longtime listeners of the Thesis Review will have noticed that we took a long break since the last episode. I took some time off the podcast for the academic job search, and I'm happy to announce that I'll be starting as an assistant professor at Carnegie Mellon University in January of 2024. I'm looking forward to helping the next generation of researchers develop and write their own theses and go off to do amazing things. It's truly a dream job. Please feel free to reach out if you're interested in doing research in machine learning and language generation. On a related note, this interview was actually recorded in late 2022, so you'll notice that some of the recent work we allude to is from that time period. I apologize for not getting out earlier, but Luke has many timeless and amazing insights that I'm sure you'll enjoy. The thesis review is available on SoundCloud. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and be sure to follow us on Twitter at Thesis Review. To support the podcast, go to patreon.com slash thesis review, or make a one-time donation at buymeacoffee.com slash thesis review. There are links to the thesis and the papers that we mentioned in the show notes. Here's Luke Zettelmoyer with Learning to Map Sentences to Logical Form on the Thesis Review. Yeah, thanks so much for coming into the Thesis Review. And so before we go into, you know, going back and looking at what you did during your PhD and then what you're thinking about now, uh, why don't we go back to just how you got started uh, even before the PhD? What initially got you interested in doing research and eventually deciding to do a PhD? Yeah, it's a great question. So I started, um, I was really interested in research very early. I kind of was just very excited about the idea of understanding the boundary of what we understand and how to push it forward. And just the whole notion of research was very exciting to me. So I, I started doing research, you know, my freshman year in undergrad, actually. Um, mm-hmm. I was at North Carolina State for undergrad. And I was lucky enough, I was on a scholarship, the Park Scholarship, and I was lucky enough to have some nice connections through that to be able to get in touch with some faculty. Um, Dr. James Lester sort of took me on, even though I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. And I got into research very early. 
<laughs> and it was super fun. And I just kind of loved it from day one. And of course, I had a lot of growing to do to eventually become an independent researcher. Uh, but I would hang around the lab and get involved in projects and uh, learn more about what research was. And back then we were doing, and his lab still does AI for education. And so it was very different from what I ended up doing for my PhD, but it was okay. Um, it was still a really great experience and I really, really enjoyed it. It convinced me I want to keep doing it. Mm-hmm. Did, did you ever like loop back and think about AI for education since then or, or not really? I mean, you know, not, not in a serious way, um, but I will sometimes like look at the papers and think about it. I feel like it's a really amazing use case, right? It's a place where there's a clear case for positive impact for the world. And um, if you can do it well, you know, it's so many students that need to learn better and not everyone has access to amazing, you know, educational resources like we do. Um, often, especially say at UW or <clears throat> other top universities. So, you know, I, I do find it very exciting, but I haven't, unfortunately, haven't committed. <laughs> I tend to be a little bit more on the model side these days or data side and less on the, the end application, although I think it's equally important, honestly. So then did it seem like a kind of natural next step? Yeah, it seemed natural to then go on to do a PhD? That was, that was definitely my goal from the beginning. Um, I'm, I, mean, I didn't really know kind of what it would take and exactly how to get into a top PhD program and all that kind of stuff along the way. But that's definitely the goal. And then I guess the bigger question for me was more like, what area do I actually want to work in? Because I sort of, even though I was relatively young and didn't know a lot of stuff, I was at least pretty good at realizing that, like, you know, you get a few big chances to make changes and starting a PhD, you know, you could go in different directions and figure out what you actually want to do. Um, and that was really fun. And, you know, I, I went to MIT for my PhD and I started out working with Leslie Kubling actually more in sort of statistical relational learning and grounded robotics type settings and a little bit of reinforcement learning. So I even even guessed wrong what I wanted to do <laughs> or, or changed my mind. I don't know the right way to say it. Um, and then partway through my PhD, uh, Mike Collins joined MIT and I started also working with him and I stayed co-advising all the way through the end, but I kind of did a second line of work on semantic parsing and NLP that I think people know a lot better uh, these days. Um, and switched totally to NLP. So, you know, because I was in that new area, I think that makes sense. But also, um, you know, it's hard to know what you want to do in advance and you get excited about different things and go in different directions. And I think that's all healthy and good for, for a research. Yeah. How did you know that that initial direction kind of wasn't going to be the thing you wanted to focus on? If you think <laughs> well, I still dream about working on it now, too. So it's not, it, it, there's some opportunism, I think, in the whole thing, right, in terms of what catches on and, and where you actually have good ideas and so forth. But, um, you know, the, the original motivation for me and kind of straddling the two, I was really interested in thinking about, like, interaction and grounding in the world and so forth. Um, and so dialogue was kind of the connection. I wanted to think about, you know, systems that could have really interesting conversations and back and forth with you and actually do stuff in the physical world based on what you're saying. Um, mm -hmm. And of course, that was way too big of a scope, right? And, you know, still, still could be a career goal for many, many people. Um, so then I try to think about how do you scope that back? And so I had some projects with, with Leslie working on statistical relational learning for world models. So things that would actually represent objects and relationships in the world and be able to plan forward through time and deal with uncertainty and incomplete information and all the things that you would kind of need to push those models towards more realistic worlds. And then I thought, well, in addition to be able to predict what's going on in the world and what agents are going to do, you also need to understand what they're saying. So, well, when I work on semantic parsing, like actually building representations of what 
folks are saying. And the dream was always, and it's kind of hilarious in hindsight, and I knew it wasn't really going to happen, but the dream was that you'd have this kind of semantic analysis, this interaction in a world, and you'd somehow merge those two things together someday. And that has not happened. Mm. I doubled down on the semantic side <laughs> and pushed it forward over time and never really got back to the grounded interaction side. Although I, I would, you know, you all of Artsy and others that I've worked with over the years have have done some of that and it's been really great. Um, and so, I, you know, I haven't totally given up on that, but there's only so much time in the day and, you know, you can't do everything. Yeah, yeah, I see. So then on this idea of grounding, it, it's kind of one of these general words and especially people not in the area might not have a clear picture of like what that might mean. So what does it mean to do this kind of grounded, to have a model that's grounded or to look into tasks that involve grounding? Yeah, I think that it, it's actually not even well-defined when I use it. It was one of those tricky words we use a lot in research. Um, for me, it basically means there's something more than just text. If you want to take the most general definition, and probably you could go even more, but that's pretty general. Um, and, you know, so you could talk about grounding in programming languages or grounding in databases or grounding in, you know, um, AR, VR or an actual physical robot that when you tell it to do something, it should actually do that thing for you in the physical world. Um, so at the time in grad school, I was most interested in the interactive kind of robotics setting, although we did it on simulation, it was too hard to work with real robots. Other folks in the group were doing real robots and that was super fun to be around them, but I wasn't. Um, but I think you can, you can do it very generally. And I guess, you know, um, a lot of more modern, maybe you'd call it something like alignment or something if it was more grounded in people and interaction. Um, but this basic notion that you need something beyond just text, you know, you need something um that you do with the nlp uh, other than classification or text is i think very very empowering and very interesting so then back during your phd you'd kind of uh, briefly hinted at it so you started working on this problem of text to logical forms and it seems to kind of relate to this area of of grounding so could you just like introduce uh, what this problem was and maybe like from a historical perspective uh, like, yeah, what did it really seem uh, interesting at the time? Yeah, so there's probably lots of different ways of defining it, but um, I could define it sort of two different ways that are not perfectly aligned, but kind of interacting. So one would be, you know, basically when somebody says something, you need to understand it at a level where you can do the appropriate response, right? Um, and the, sort of one of the easiest, and it's kind of, so the full meaning of a sentence is just really hard to fathom. And so what you often do is you scope it down to a limited setting where you can get a relatively complete representation in that setting. Um, but, but, you know, that's a small fraction of semantics or meaning or something. And one typical trick of doing this would be like in a natural language interface to a database. So there the, the English or the, the, the language, usually English might be, um, a question, for whatever reason, there's this small database about U.S. geography called GeoQuery that everybody was working with years and years ago. Uh, you know, so you might say, like, what states border Texas or something like that. And then you need to map that to some meaning representation that's sufficient to go into the database or the world knowledge and look up the answer. Uh, so now modern, you would think, oh, just map it directly to SQL with like Codex or something. And actually, that is the way to do it. It's really fun to think about. But back then, we didn't have any neural networks, let alone pre-training. And so we built a more linguistically inspired approaches based on formal grammars and other things. And I, I can talk a little bit about that if, if it's interesting. 
Um, but the idea was that the mapping from the input language to some meaning representation, um, linguistically inspired or otherwise, is you know really important problem. It's really hard, um, and you know we should look at that. Now, for the context of my thesis in particular, you know these semantic parsers that map to these meaning representations, they've been around since the beginning of AI, right? Um, so Woods did like a thesis on this long, long time ago. Um, one of the first round of AI theses, and you know, but it was all hand engineered. So you'd write out the grammars, and you'd, mm -hmm. you'd think through all the cases and so forth. And so the context where we came in um, in our work was, uh, how could you learn this? How could you make it easier to do this in new settings for a new dialogue system or a new database or something, uh, and not have to do really complicated and hard to manage engineering for each each new application? And so that that was it was more the machine learning and structure prediction kind of perspective than it was uh, the fact of doing a semantic parser in the first place. You'd mentioned these systems like CMU, Phoenix, and Core Language Engine. And it seemed to require like a lot of engineering like for a specific problem. I guess like you're saying, a kind of more learning-based approach was what you were looking into. And it was also kind of a new way of uh, looking at things. That's right, yeah. And I think that um, even within the learning-based approach, uh, you know, we were in those days still back solidly in the classic NLP pipeline kind of way of thinking about things where when you analyze a sentence, you're first going to, for example, do part of speech tagging and then syntactic parsing to build a structure. And then your semantic analysis in so much as it happened at all at the time would be on top of that syntactic structure. So it'd be compositional and you'd look at the different subparts of the syntactic tree and you'd build up bigger and bigger semantic representations for bigger and bigger chunks of the sentence and so forth. Um, so there have been a little bit of machine learning for this, but you would kind of require labeled data of all of those steps. So for any input sentence, you'd be building these very interesting structures, uh, very linguistically motivated, but you'd have, you know, thousands of decisions to make to build one of these structures for a sentence. And to learn to do that, you would need data with all those decisions explicitly labeled in it by a linguist, and it'd be hard to do that labeling. Um, so another sort of advance in terms of on the more algorithmic side was that we had a particular meaning representation, which was called lambda calculus, um, very linguistically motivated, has some really nice properties, but we explicitly only labeled the lambda calculus uh, and didn't label any of the derivational steps that were required to build it. And those were all modeled as latent variables. And the argument would be that that would make your labeling job a lot easier. And I think that is true, it does. Um, and so then, but it's a harder learning problem. And at the time, latent variable learning problems with, with you know, unlabeled variables where you do marginal inference and things like that were, were all the rage. So it was kind of well-timed too. There's a lot of interest in that area. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Like, um, so, so like you're saying, you go from text and then you had this lambda calculus representation and then the intermediate tree in between uh, the parse tree was kind of unlabeled. And then the other thing that I didn't realize until I like started reading through it is here, like you're saying, nowadays we might think of having a neural network go from text directly to some representation like a SQL query. Here it was you go from text and then you output a grammar, right? And so instead of having a neural network, now you have like this grammar that can parse a new sentence. Mm -hmm. And so then like the grammar itself is maybe less flexible than the network. I mean, if, you know, probably if you, if I had some time, I could sit down and design an adversarial data set and it probably wouldn't be that hard because I have 
if I haven't forgotten CCG grammars and how they work, they have some beautiful generalization properties. So I could design some long mm. adversarial sentences with some interesting compositional semantics that would very easily break the biggest neural networks alive, right? Um, you know, doubly filled com filters and blah, 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 all this really complex coordination, all these really cool linguistic phenomenon. But in practice, they just don't actually happen that much So in real data. So, mm -hmm. you know, I think the grammars have beautiful generalization properties, um, but language is messy and they would have trouble with the long tail too. It's just that certain cases they haven't been designed for, and a lot of them, you know, combinatorially many of them, it would do very well. Um, but they're also, you know, in the end, kind of the thing, we're getting jumping way into the future, but that the reason we finally gave up on CCG grammars, despite the fact that I love them so much and they're so beautiful <laughs> and they have such interesting generalization is that like, you know, at some point, I don't remember what year, but there were kind of 10 people in the world that could do this kind of stuff, you know, including, you know, eight of them in my group, or I mean, not really, there was more than that, but overall, but, you know, and then, you know, these neural nets were coming out that could map, you know, English directly to SQL or something. And, you know, anybody in the world could do it with an afternoon of training and enough GPUs. And it was just kind of, you know, it's it, it, the progress was clear. <laughs> like, it, you know, in the end, you know, as much as I love the models and I love the algorithms, I'm very motivated by you know building things that people can actually use. You know, so mm -hmm. um, and a lot of the later work kind of shifted more in that way. Like, what actually works? What's easy easier to use? What's going to get broad adoption? Um, and that was kind of the nail in the coffin in the end for that line of work. <laughs> you know, I could teach you for months and months and you could build something that's almost as good as something you could build in the afternoon, then there's a problem there. Mm -hmm. But the linguistic was fundamentally important. The stuff you would learn along the way would be interesting for lots of other reasons, but it wouldn't be the, the right way to build that in the system, I don't think, anymore. Yeah, yeah, I see. So it seems like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but like maybe the 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 mindset at the time is like you needed to construct this meaning representation for your application and then you had to get to the meaning representation and then like maybe to make it more flexible you kind of add things onto the representation and it seems much different than this kind of end-to-end -end method so what do you think it was that kind of caused the shift was it just like you started seeing convincing results and kind of knew that um, the more end-to-end -end approach was the way forward or, yeah. Um, I think, you know, it was, it was a multi-year process. So before pre-training happened, um, there was, I don't know exactly how many years, probably a handful of years of more and more deep learning going on in the field and more and more, you know, it, when it first started, it was like, take the classic NLP pipeline and replace a piece with a neural model. So you'd have like a neural tagger and a neural parser and so forth. And then, you know, at some point it became more end to end, like you say. So, and we did a lot of that work eventually, like we were a little late to get into deep learning, but then once we did get into it, we'd say like, well, why do we need this whole pipeline? Why don't we just jump directly to co-reference or directly to predicate argument structure or directly to something that's at a higher level and let say, you know, big BIOS TM or something do all the intermediate computation. So that had been going on for a while. Um, and I think for me, the thing that kind of, um, really convinced me was when the results got really good for that. Um, and then when um, when the representations you could output at the end of that became, you know, so interesting and complex that they were, you know, as good as, you know, anything we could design by hand. I mean, it's still not entirely true. Like, 
the semantic parsers of the day would do, you know, like negation and quantifier scope and all these phenomena that we largely stopped focusing on and, and the neural nets aren't that good at. Um, so, so it's not like they've 100% replaced everything. Uh, but again, for lots of applications, they're amazing and they can, you know, output code and do other things directly, which is really, really useful. Um, so I think we did kind of give up on some problems implicitly just with a shift from sort of our more linguistically focused tasks to more end tasks. Um, but in the end, end tasks are very well motivated and exciting. Um, so there's trade-offs. So this idea of going from text or some like informal representation to a formal representation, it seems like certainly in the case of code, the formal representation is like, it's not something that's just invented. It's like actually the thing you want at the end. And so at least from a problem statement perspective, it does seem like this is still very relevant, like going from some text specification to some code. Yeah, if you like think about these types of problems today, uh, semantic parsing or uh, related types of problems. Um, yeah, how do you think about them uh, today? Yeah, I think, you know, semantic parsing has essentially become language to code and that, you know, language and code models are much more general than just semantic parsers. You can do all kinds of other things like, you know, bug checking and documentation and all these kind of software engineering type tasks, you know, more or less, they're not solved, but you can do them. And that's pretty amazing. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I think that it, actually all the goals of semantic parsing are still alive and well. Um, it's just in this new, new appearance. And I, I think that's great, actually. Um, in general, I think you could, if you wanted to do more kind of analysis style work or more understanding style work, you could go back to some of the older ideas again, like negation and quantifiers. And I'm, I'm sure you could break current systems and think about ways of training them better and think about new signals for them. Um, that's kind of in my mind how a lot of the linguistic motivation is still relevant these days, is kind of thinking about understanding models and how to make them more general. Um, but I think it's alive and well. I mean, I find that work very exciting. And, and I find the generalization really great um, and thinking about more context and, you know, more ways of blending it into other things. You know, could you do like language and code models that are also dialogue systems where you can like co-author code together and discuss and use code to disambiguate when things are ambiguous and things like that? Um, there's been a little work on that, but not a whole lot. And the notion that these things can all be kind of blended together so easily and you can build full systems. I mean, that was just an absolute nightmare in the past. You had all these modules and you had to engineer things together and it can take months of work to kind of scale things and you never had enough data and everything is just completely different now. And I find it really refreshing, like very exciting of what you can even think about doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and you had like some... Um obviously like some nice work in, in the thesis and it got at some core ideas in machine learning, like the idea of uh, trying to in, like infer these latent variables. There were things like online training, e even like the setting, the context dependent setting. And so there, I guess like you had multiple um, semantic parses and then like the last one might depend on the previous one. And it actually kind of felt like a, like a hint at a interactive dialogue setting. <laughs> so like um, you'd mentioned that you kind of shifted to other research areas, but even from like a loose perspective, how did like working on these problems kind of impact your thinking later? Or do you even like think about these types of things today? Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
You know, remember I, if I told you earlier that I was very motivated by dialogue and the whole thing, even though I never actually wrote many, any, I don't even wrote any papers, but um, so that, that last part of the thesis was literally like trying to take steps towards dialogue. That was exactly the motivation. Even Maybe I didn't write it that way, but um, that, at a high level. And I, I, I think the problems are all still relevant. Um, and I think that uh, context in language understanding is absolutely crucial. And, you know, exactly what that means is very open. There's so many different ways of thinking about context, context for dialogue, document context, cultural context, you know, all these issues about fairness and bias. This is all different kinds of context. Um, common sense can even be thought about that if you think about sort of the knowledge that you have for the model. So probably I'm scoping it too broadly now, but there's lots of ways of thinking about understanding in context. And I think that's really where we should be going in general. Um, mm -hmm. the, the specific techniques, I mean, you know, um, maybe not as much, but the problems, they're still far from solved. I mean, even, you know, so maybe we don't want to do database querying anymore. That's reasonable. But even if you're doing like, um, you know, question answering or something sort of more reading comprehension style, I mean, there was, we did some like a, a data set quack a while back where you had follow up questions from previous questions and like a hidden context and stuff. And it was very similar setup to that last chapter of my thesis, but it was for reading comprehension style question answering. And, you know, that data set's not solved. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you could think of the same kind of things in general. I think a really healthy research agenda is to have like a longer term goal in mind. And then, you know, be really realistic about how close we are actually are to it with the tasks that we're, we're working on and try to keep pushing towards it more, more over time. So, for example, in question answering, you know, we make so many assumptions to make our question answering data sets tractable that are so unrealistic if your goal is actually to answer any question a user might be able to ask, right? Like one of my students say one, and it's done some really great work on like ambiguous question answering or questions that make presuppositions or questions where you don't know the answer in advance. And in general, this notion that like we need to have this longer term goal, we need to keep pushing towards it. You know, that's what I was doing in my thesis. And, and you know, I think it's not solved by any means, but in all different settings, we can kind of take that same mindset. And I think that can be healthy. Mm -hmm. Do you think that um, for these longer term goals, it's good to have a particular application in mind or like a, a task or are like individual tasks becoming less challenging over time? How, how do you think about that? I mean, it probably varies by researcher. So it's a broad question. No, that's great. Uh, I don't think there's a right answer here, except I would say, you know, um, it's great to try to do general models. It's, it's great to try to specialize and get even better models. You know, there's a really interesting trade off there. Um, the one thing I guess I would stress here is just be realistic about the actual data and sort of tasks you have. Even the notion of a task is kind of not always precise, a lot like grounding or something. And, you know, if, if question answering is the task, just be aware that like no data set that we have actually does that task, right? <laughs> they do specific specialized instances of that task. Um, and so I'd be less excited about spending your whole career trying to solve a single data set but plenty excited about spending your whole career trying to solve the task of question answering much more generally construed. Like that, that's really hard and interesting and exciting. There was one more thing, just a fun question. Uh, so at the time, if someone would have told you that, uh, you know, 20 or whatever years from now, we'll have a large language model and you could basically just like teach it to do some of these semantic parsing tasks in its context, 
how like crazy would that have sounded at the time? <laughs> it's kind of hard to fathom. Twenty years is a long time. It's like scary to think that I've been doing this actually even longer than that. But um, I, I just wouldn't have believed it. And, I, and in hindsight, I feel like kind of bad about <laughs> certain things. Like the field just had such a prejudice against neural nets when I was in grad school. Like I didn't even know anything about them because my mentors told me not to even bother. Right, and it was it's really kind of sad in hindsight. Um, I try now to not have this kind of prejudice and be more open to different ideas as much as I can. Um, and yeah, I, I just, it's even not even language models. It's like everything has become natural language generation, right? And <laughs> when I was in grad school, generation was like just impossible. It was considered too hard to even think about. And the kinds of things you could generate with the models were just very bizarre and not fluent at all. I mean, one of the biggest things I think that we underestimate is just how much more fluent you know, the generation has gotten with the big models, right? Like it's just, you used to have trouble producing grammatical sentences and that's just like not even a thing anymore. Like <laughs> the kinds of things that were impossible are now taken for granted. Uh, and it's, it's, it's hard to predict. I mean, think of all the things that are impossible today, you know, probably in 20 years, five or six of them, big ones will be solved. You know, which ones? I have no idea, right? Like it's really hard to know. Um, so yeah, and, and the notion that you can just kind of treat code like, like strings is, is also kind of mind-boggling and that the model works the feature learns the features to work all that out um you know the code that it produces basically always compiles like that's just kind of mind-blowing to me still it, it's really cool and i wish i understood it better i mean I, I do it a certain way but like understanding things at the scale we're operating at now you know what are all the uh 50 billion parameters in the model each contributing like I mean, that's, we're, we're basically reached a new place where we're probably never going to fully understand that, but it's really interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of, um, yeah, like you mentioned the code and then also, um, there's been some work trying to use these large language models for, uh, mathematics and like theorem proving. And so on one side of it, there's these formal libraries that are used for software verification as well. And there was like this surprising finding from a team at Google that basically like you could use codecs and set up the prompt the correct way. And you could go from natural language to this formal specification um, fairly, fairly well. And so this was just like some hidden, kind of hidden thing that codecs had like picked up to be able to do this auto formalization. And that was like completely surprising. It's sort of basically a shop programming language in the sense like it's like a whole new language it's never seen before basically there's like very little training data available for these uh, formal theorem proving libraries mm -hmm. and then they typically are in like more advanced mathematics so then if it's able to do any auto formalization for these like simpler types of problems then it's it's pretty good evidence that it's generalizing to some new setting cool yeah yeah it's pretty amazing. I mean, I guess, you know, we can always do hindsight retrospection and you can say like, well, you know, once you've seen 50 programming languages in your data, you know, and you're learning, trying to learn features and you've, you're regularized properly, you're sharing features across them, you know, maybe you've learned a model of what programming languages or formal specifications are more generally so that when you see a little bit, you can, you know, you can pick it up. Um, and I think we also know the models have a lot of copying behaviors. So they really want to mimic the context. And this is, you know, the simplest version of context from what I was rambling about earlier, but that's kind of the string that you give it as input. 
Um, and it's so good at mimicking that in a very general way that I think we don't fully understand yet. So somehow those two things combine. I still find it fascinating they can do it, but there's some, some evidence mm -hmm. that it's going to do more and more of that kind of stuff going forward, right? Yeah, yeah. And then another another surprising thing is like a year or two years ago, the idea of like fully generating some proof or some solution to one of these complicated problems. I think there was like a math data set at NeurIPS and it said if we just naively scale, then we'll need like 10 to the 35 parameters. But then there's this really nice paper called Minerva from Google recently. And now the models are kind of outputting uh, solutions that are correct and they might just be like slightly off. So it's almost like now the question is shifted to how do we how do we like trust the output of the model or how do we verify it Absolutely. versus like the models can be very good at self verifying themselves too. So that's definitely going to be a trend in the short term. Um, you know, the really interesting thing about Minerva that kind of I still wish I understood better is like how much low level details like tokenization actually really matter for those results. Um, mm -hmm. And that's I just really yeah. fascinating. The whole kind of full stack analysis of these models, like tiny little details you think wouldn't matter actually matter way more than you think. And we're still trying to sort all that out, I think. So yeah, maybe on that note, we can start talking about uh, some things that you've worked on since the PhD. As an anchor point, <laughs> we can talk about uh, the work on ELMO. This was like a really landmark paper in the field. And it kind of gets at this idea of like large scale pre-training and coming up with these representations from like general bodies of text. But yeah, if you could just talk through like uh, the backstory behind this work and maybe like quickly, like how you shifted to uh, this area of research. Yeah, absolutely. It's super, super fun time. It was kind of wild. Um, I think I won't get to be involved in too many projects like that over the course of my career. So I was really happy. Um, so I had joined AI2 and I was um, helping the, the folks there kind of start up the LNNLP effort at the time. And um, so I was getting involved in lots of new stuff and trying to understand what everybody had been up to and how to help them and so forth. And, you know, Matt Peters really deserves, you know, 99.9% .9 of the credit for everything Elmo. You know, he really had been working in this area for a while. And the kind of notion of pre-training, even though we didn't really have the, the vocabulary in NLP for it yet, <clears throat> I think it sort of existed in vision, even if it was just ImageNet pre-training the ideas were kind of floating around and he was really excited about them. I didn't really understand it at all. Um, and of course there are other folks in NLP in parallel doing similar things. Um, but he kind of came to me and, you know, his pitching projects and we're brainstorming is really fun. And he said, you know, actually we've got this result from last year where you can use, you know, large language models, um, make taggers better. So there's, a, you know, Elmo paper is not a huge technical advance. And I can't remember the name of the paper, but Matt and a few other AI2 authors had a very similar paper about a year before Elmo. And, you know, it kind of, it basically had the fundamental result in it. And I think if you look back in the literature, it's been discovered a few other times before that. And we all kind of just didn't pay attention as a field. We weren't sort of mentally ready for it yet, I think. Um, you know, we were so invested in word embeddings and we were so enjoying doing our end-to-end -end training. Like we had just done end-to-end -end models to go directly to SRL and CoREF with no NLP pipeline. I was so proud we had killed the NLP pipeline, right? Um, but actually, you know, we were not thinking about how to train the models right at all. And even in Elmo, we got it wrong. Like GPT got it right later, right? 
So, but, but one thing that we did is, you know, he showed me this other paper and I was like, this is amazing. Like, this is a really big gain. Of course, it was like a fraction, but because it's NER, right? So the numbers are tiny, but like, it's really hard to get those gains. It's really impressive. Yeah. And so, you know, I talked to Matt and I was like, look, if this is real, like, this is a really big deal. So my contribution was basically to say, like, prove it, you know, <laughs> like, if this is if this is as big of a deal as you think it is, like convince the world. And so Elmo was, you know, there was definitely some technical advances. There was some cool averaging. We trained some models differently, um, but it was largely an exercise in proving the point that he had already made the year before, um, which no one paid any attention to. And so we brainstormed about what tasks and how to actually show it. And, and so then we got a team together. Everybody's running all these results, and you know, over the course of I don't know a month or two, whatever, more and more task results came in, more results, and we're just getting these like unbelievable monster gains, right? And so every every week, basically, we were all getting more and more excited. It was pretty clear by the time uh, we were with the paper that it was going, you know, you just couldn't build a model without it after that if you wanted to go for state of the art, right? It just wasn't possible, mm. um, and you know, then that took off from there. And even when you know, I think. Um, the ML community, we even submitted it to an ML conference first and they didn't quite get it. You know, there wasn't a lot of technical innovation, but the NLP community really got it, right? Because the results were just mm -hmm. so strong. Um, and, you know, then it, it went from there. I see. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. So then at the time, it did, it did feel like something um, big. Yeah, I mean, it was pretty clear by the time the paper came out that like, going forward, if you wanted to build state-of-the-art systems, you'd have to include something like contextual word embeddings, you know, Elmo in the short term, longer term, of course, that's something else is always going to come along. But the notion that you have just like context independent word embeddings was dead. Um, the thing that we missed that quickly other people figured out, uh, including Bert and GPT and other papers, GPT-2, I think was the next one, was that, you know, actually you don't really want word embeddings at all. You want a generic architecture. You want to pre-train the whole thing. And we totally missed that. It was just too thinking about things the old ways where you really wanted to have custom architectures for each task. So, you know, mm -hmm. um, but we proved that there were really big gains to be had and they came along and got even bigger gains. And then we came along after Bert with Roberta and just scaled it up and showed there were even bigger gains on top of it. And so then we were just kind of in this really busy space where everybody was just going crazy. And it was like a sort of magical time where everything just got much, much better, right? Um, really fast over the mm -hmm. course of a year or two, every, you know, suddenly the systems were, you know, 30% better than they were before. And that's just kind of, kind of shocking, honestly. Like that's not going to happen that often, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. So do you think like, if you could look at a kind of like meta level, um, if we look at the work in the PhD versus like this type of work with like Elmo or Roberta, it seems like it's a different style kind of. So yeah, how do you look at these projects nowadays, these like large scale projects where like you're saying, kind of getting the, the details right and doing it just like really well at a large scale is can be crucial in them. The, the overall trend for me and, you know, I tend to be just, the thing that excites me about research is, you know, building systems that can do stuff they could have never done before, right? It's that kind of newness, the sort of new functionality, the new, you know, huge phase shift in performance where it's fundamentally doing new things it would have never done before. And, you know, my thesis was very motivated by, you know, is it even possible to do a full semantic analysis of a sentence to learn to do that from as little supervision as possible, mm -hmm. right? And so the reason I was excited about the CCG grammars and other things besides their beauty um, 
was just uh, they, they could do things that I couldn't do with any other model. Right? Mm. So I could do this really interesting analysis. And then the nail in the coffin was when there were simpler ways of doing that same thing. I said, well, I better, better switch now. And I think that the large scale pre-training very much fits that, that, that template, actually. It's like, um, there's just, it's so new. It's, it's a new functionality. It's doing things we don't understand. It's, it's giving us this huge phase shift in performance. Um, so that's what I get motivated by. And, you know, I'm kind of, I can get excited about lots of different methods too. And there's some beautiful things about the large language models. There's some hacky things too. We'd like to make better. And that's true for all the methods. It was true for the grammars too. Um, but the, the newness of it, the kind of pushing the boundary of what we understand, the sort of saying, for problems that we care about, what's the best way to solve them? And let's ruthlessly mm -hmm. go after that and try to understand them and make them better. And when we find a new thing, then, you know, it might be sad to give up on our old thing, but uh, if we're really convinced, you know, we don't want to switch around too much, but if we're really convinced that like, actually it's just better, then in some sense, the longer you wait, the worse. Right? <laughs> you get on that new thing and, and, and try to understand it and try to push it. I think in that way, I'm more of like a classic NLP researcher willing to kind of jump around to what works more motivated by the problems uh, than the methods. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And then so in terms of these large language models, currently, if they're becoming uh, really predominant in the field, then like as scientists, we want to be able to study them to some extent. Like initially, a lot of these were kind of closed off or available to just a couple large companies. But I think like you've been playing a role in kind of changing this. So especially like this recent work on OPT. So do you just want to talk through um, that work and like what was the vision behind it? Yeah, absolutely. So um, for OPT, I think uh, Susan and Stephen and Nama and the first three authors are, you know, they really did all the work there. It was a very senior advisory role, even less so than <laughs> with Elmo and other projects. Um, but I, but I was I was involved and I tried to help where I could. Um, and I think the one nice thing about spending a lot of my time at Meta is that they have, a, and especially FAIR, is that they have a very strong open science mandate. So they just believe in the value of, you know, sharing science and sharing what you're doing with the world and having things open. It's good for research when everybody has access to things. And so, you know, and then, of course, if you're in a corporate environment, you know, other corporations are definitely not going to share with you as opposed to, say, sharing with academics or something. So it was pretty clear at Meta that we need to replicate some of these large models um, for research purposes. We need access. Um, and a team got together to do it. And there was definitely research on top of it, too. It wasn't strictly replication. Uh, you'll see more of that research coming out over time. Some of it, a lot of it already has. Um, but then, you know, the cool thing and from my perspective is once you've done that replication, you've spent the money, you've spent the effort, it's a very considerable effort, um, we can release it and share it with the world. And I, I find that really exciting. It's a big reason why I like being in this research environment. Um, and, you know, there are serious, serious responsible AI and ethics concerns about releasing these models. And so doing it right can be quite tricky. And we put a lot of effort into thinking about that. I'm not sure we got it perfect, but we at least tried and we'll keep trying and we'll learn and we'll make things better. Um, but, you know, it's just, it's, it's a really strange state of affairs when most of the field doesn't have access to really important artifacts like large language models. Um, and that when the access they do have is through APIs that are honestly uh, not good for science in the sense that the underlying models change, replicability is an issue. It's almost more of a product than it is um, 
a nice, you know, research artifact that you can study. And, you know, it's okay. I mean, everybody has their own incentives and I, I don't, um, I think, you know, any access is way better than no access, but the more we can kind of give people access in a way that they can do good science, they can look at the internals, they can have reference implementations that aren't going to change. These kinds of things are really, really important. And if we don't do it, the field is going to slow down. Like I really, I'm just excited about progress. I'm excited about new problems. I'm excited about pushing boundaries. And I think this is really important for that. Yeah, yeah, it is really exciting. And then I'd imagine that like in order to be able to run this model efficiently and be able to do research on it efficiently, that itself will even require some new research. Uh, which is pretty exciting. And it's already happening. And I think having access to the model and, you know, we're not the only ones. Bloom, of course, have released their model too. And so I hope it becomes a trend. And I think we need lots of reference models, right? Um, Sorry, I should say the open open science effort that Hugging Face was largely running, but many people involved released the Bloom model. Um, Mm -hmm. And... Um, and then, you know, using the models is going to get better and better over time. So even Tim Detmers just had a paper on doing, you know, int eight versions of the models. And so now um, you can load 175B model on a single HGPU node, you know, which is still pretty expensive, but it doesn't require infraband. So it's kind of an order of magnitude cheaper uh, compute requirement, if you think about it, um, just to run the inference on the model. Training the model is a whole nother, whole nother story, but you know we're thinking a lot about it. Uh, other people are thinking a lot about it, and in general, you know, my mindset is build stuff people can use, right? You know, and so uh, I care about release, but I also care about you know efficiency and um, usability and all the kind of infra that goes with that. Is is you know maybe it's not glamorous from a research perspective, but it's really really important. And it enables, it's enabling of other people's research. And I, and I think somebody's got to do that. And why not give it a shot? Yeah, I had another question about the absolute performance of a model. Um, and yeah, let me unpack this a bit. So if we go back to what you mentioned about the APIs, then we might have a really powerful API that we can access, but we actually don't really know what's going on behind the scenes. Like it could be trained on private data. It could be like fine-tuned with reinforcement learning or something like that. And so then if we have just a, a, a really large language model and we know exactly what it's trained on, but it might not have this mystery stuff, then the absolute performance might be lower. But like as a research community, is it okay to not worry about the absolute number and say like, well, we understand this one better. And here, when we do this like particular intervention, like this new learning algorithm or something, here's like the performance gain we get. Is that kind of an okay state of affairs to have for research, if that makes sense? Yeah, I think it's absolutely okay. And I think that, you know, we should have lots of different kinds of research projects making lots of different kinds of claims. And, you know, Mm. if you look, for example, to machine translation literature, they've been in this situation for a lot longer than the language understanding literature. You know, some machine translation papers compared to commercial state-of-the-art MT engines, the kinds of claims you can make there are a bit more limited because you don't know what went into making that system, you know? So, you know, it, you could imagine that some engineer sat down and looked at every sentence in the test set and like tuned the system for it. We just don't know, right? It's possible. Um, or, you know, probably not, but probably some of those sentences are high <laughs> frequency enough that they did actually tune the system for it. So, you know, beating a commercial um, application like that is very valuable. That's a really cool point, but it's hard to know kind of how to evaluate algorithms based on that, right? 
Um, and so that's how I think about, say, for example, the OpenAI API is like, you know, if you beat that, that's amazing. That's really cool. But it doesn't necessarily tell us like a head to head comparison how two algorithms are doing. And so if you're trying to study the algorithms, you're trying to study the data or something else, more head to head comparisons are much more interesting in my mind. And, you know, as much as I kind of personally get excited about building things that are best in the world, you know, and so forth, you know, in publishing, we got to not obsess so much about state of the art, right? Like make scientific claims, measure differences, help us understand. This is way, way more important than getting the absolute best number for any particular paper. Um, and so I think you want, you want both basically, but you want actually way more of the understanding and careful study than you want of the, like chasing the state of the art, in my opinion. Another thing is uh, this idea of like emergent abilities. So related to scale and like things we're talking about, that some in some tasks currently, uh, like these mathematical tasks, um, it appears that we might actually, again, like currently, need to scale up the model in order to reach some like threshold. Do you have like any intuition for this? And again, like how how you see research on these types of tasks that might require scale should go like moving forward? Yeah, absolutely. great question. Um, I find emergent behaviors really fascinating. They're really, really interesting. They're one of the you know biggest kind of empirical analysis type findings in the last few years, no question, maybe even much, much longer. Um, I think that we don't understand why they emerge or exactly how they emerge. Um, and I think that's, we need to somehow get some traction on that. I don't actually even know how to go about it, but probably much smarter people than me that are figuring it out right now all over the world. Um, and then we need to understand, you know, could we get those abilities other ways? Could we get them to emerge sooner? Can we make models more efficient at a bigger scale so that everyone can get access to studying them? You know, all these kinds of questions. Um, and one thing to remember in general, just harp a little bit, um, that you know, it's not just model size that changes. Uh, the, almost always you're getting more data or different data as you scale models. Uh, maybe not in the careful scaling laws papers, they don't always do that. But um, when you make it like, you know, a best in class model, you're using different data, you're using more data, you're using way more compute. Um, and if I had to pick a single metric, I would say the total amount of compute, uh, which usually corresponds to data, because in modern regimes, you don't make multiple passes over your data. That's actually even more interesting than a uh, number of parameters. So if we ran a smaller model for longer, or if we did our data differently, or if we filtered stuff, could we get those same behaviors much more efficiently? Um, I, seems very likely to me, but I've been wrong many times. So you know, we'll see where the field goes. Uh, but the fact that the behaviors exist at all, and we can put a finger on them, and we can study them is really, really interesting. And I think that's one huge benefit of the big models right now. Yeah, so you, you mentioned this idea of data. and for me, like this one, this chinchilla paper was really interesting. Do you see there being a potential shift from just scaling up model size, like you're saying, to like understanding this data parameter or the number of tokens and then the kind of underlying hyperparameter of the quality of the data becoming more important uh, moving forward? I think so. I think if, I'm not sure if this will be like, only for folks doing large models with you know, supercomputers, or if this will sort of propagate to the whole field. But if you're in the game of building large language models, um, basically bending the scaling law curves is the game now. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't. I think it's, we're pretty early in that. And even understanding the chinchilla results, I mean, um, I think this area has become 
you know, so hard that, you know, basically we need to do many more replication studies and many more deep dives to understand. So we get kind of points in the space, but at that scale, we've trained like 10 models ever or something, right? And everything changed between each run. So I like the chinchilla scaling, but I also like the open AI scaling. And I actually don't know which one is right. I think we need more study and more replication. Um, it seems very intuitive that more data should help, but it's also different data they used. So how does data quality factor into that ratio? You know, maybe their data was noisier. Maybe their data was out of distribution more. Maybe something else changed. Um, they also have completely different infra stacks. Uh, they probably also made some other random changes like, you know, tokenization for Minerva or something, right? So it's a really exciting time. I don't want to like be negative on anyone. And I really like to see those different studies published and we should all stake out different points in the space. But in my mind, jury's still out and we need like way more work to try to understand all this. Um, that all being said, I'd be shocked if more data doesn't help. More data always helps. <laughs> but what exactly the ratio is and exactly how to optimize for the compute optimal solution, I mean, I'd love to see the discussion, but I, I, I don't think we actually know that yet. So throughout your um, your career and especially now, there's um, you kind of have two roles, like both in academia and industry. And maybe to kind of keep with the theme of what we've been talking about, with these really large scale models, let me like play a, a, a kind of like, a, you know, sad PhD student role or postdoc role that I go through sometimes myself, which is like, you could look at the scaling curve and just think like, oh, people can just like keep going on the scaling curve and they might solve all the important problems doing that. Uh, but certainly there's like other, you know, important research to be done. And then there's even things not related to scale that you might just divide up between like industry and academia. So how do you think about, um, yeah, how do you think about these differences? Um, and like, is there a difference between the research uh, yeah. areas? Great question. Um, it's, it's, it's a pretty common one. It's a hard one. Um, but I think there are differences. There's no doubt about it. Um, I think that, you know, the amount of resources you have, especially compute resources, uh, you know, but also other things too, like great collaborators or full-time engineering support or, you know, other things um, are, you know, it changes the kinds of projects you can do. There's no question about it. I personally think, you know, especially say my PhD students at UW that are not affiliated with any companies or anything, they're doing really amazing projects. So I, I personally think that there's so much we don't understand that there's no limit of really exciting projects that you can do at every compute scale. And I do hope as a field, we get less obsessed with the state of the art, like I was saying earlier. So, you know, students, so that researchers, especially young researchers can be proud of, you know, making things more efficient, even if they're not better or understanding things better, even if we don't fully understand it, because realistically, we're not going to for many, many years to come. Um, and that we're just going to have lots of really great projects across the board. Um, but it's just a fact, if, if you're only going to get excited about building a very general model that everybody downloads and uses, you know, tomorrow, realistically, that's going to be hard to do without a lot of compute. Um, and, you know, in, in academia, you can get access to a fair amount of compute. You're not going to get, you know, supercomputer scale, although actually, you know, again, like big science got access to a supercomputer for a while. So maybe bigger team projects will do some of that kind of stuff in more open ways. We don't know where everything is going, but it would be harder. There's no question. And there are trade-offs. Um, but I hope that we value lots and lots of different kinds of contributions. And there's not actually as much as a conflict as a lot of people think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Okay, well, yeah, this has been amazing. And um, I'm sure we could keep going for hours and hours. But <laughs> in, in uh, yeah, I think in the name of time, um, we have to start going to the last two questions that I always ask in the thesis review. Uh, so the first is about objective functions. So if you could say that, um, if you could come up with some objective function that described, you know, what was motivating you during your PhD, uh, be it like scientific curiosity or working backwards from some like, um, from a job, um, what would you say that was? And then do you think you have a different objective function nowadays? Yeah, actually, um, I was definitely worked back. My objective function was multifaceted <laughs> and, and, the, and the weights between the different objectives kind of changed <laughs> the longer I stayed in grad school. Uh, I definitely had in mind I wanted to make a transition to a good research career, but I tried as much as possible to downweight that till the end. Um, I was very curiosity driven. I didn't think a lot about the impact of my work, which is good and bad in hindsight. I just did stuff I found exciting. Uh, so that was kind of kind of one of the objective functions. And then the other thing, which is, you know, I don't mind, but is a little bit embarrassing in hindsight is like, I just really loved grad school. <laughs> I, I think I somewhat correctly realized it was going to be the, one of the best times in my life with the least responsibility. And so I had another objective, which was just to maximize the amount of time I could spend there. <laughs> so I actually did an eight year PhD. <laughs> and I just I had years where I was just doing cool stuff and not worrying about anything. And it was really just really wonderful. And, you know, writing some papers and stuff, but just really trying to like enjoy the lifestyle that I had. Um, and that was a big part of the process for me. That towards the end, of course, it got more stressful as I thought about finishing and getting in jobs and stuff, but it's a really special time. And I, I'm quite proud I took full advantage of it, even though people think it's a little crazy to do an eight year PhD, I really enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah, that's really awesome. And then um, the last question, sometimes it's the, the hardest, to come up with uh, one piece of advice for a new researcher. And to make it easier, it could just be a useful heuristic or it could be some grand piece of advice. Yeah, and, I, and this, I, and thanks for saying the questions in advance so I could actually practice a little for this one. But I was on a panel at Ackle uh, this year where we were giving advice to young researchers and so I'll steal a little bit from that panel and mix it up a little bit. But I think my favorite piece of advice I heard there um, was just try not to compare yourself to others so much actually, um, you know, and, you know, everybody's got their own path. Um, and, you know, it's really hard, right? Because we're fundamentally competitive type people in research often, but it can be really stressful and not helpful to spend all your time obsessing about what others have that you don't or worrying about citations or paper counts or things like that. And if you are going to compare yourself to others, the way I would challenge you to do it is to think about how you can be different. Like, think about what's your kind of unique story the things that you can go after that no one else can, and then, you know, go for it, right? Because the last thing we need is more carbon copies of other successful researchers that are already out. Um, research is special in that you can make your own path and you can tell your own story. Uh, there's very few kind of paths in life where you can do that. So, you know, think about how to be different and think about how to have impact others couldn't have. Uh, I find that really, really exciting. Well, yeah, that's awesome. And I'm continually amazed that there's always new advice uh, every time I ask the question. So <laughs> See, all, that was really all great. different than each other. All the researchers are all different than each other. We all think different. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah. So thanks. This this was really fun, and thanks so much for taking the time yeah, to uh, having me. I really to do this and to come on the thesis for you. Yeah, super fun. 